Welcome to Weed Week. I'm Alex Halperin. And I'm Donnell Alexander. This is the Weed Week podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at weedweek.net. And we are on the Twitter and Instagram at Weed Week News. Our guest today is Jeremy Burke, and he's a reporter with Business Insider. Jeremy's going to talk to us about the big deals going on in Canada, a lot of the financial angles. And on Wall Street. But first, we're going to talk about another big deal, which was a data company called Headset struck a deal with with Nielsen, who they're the, the company that puts out the TV ratings, and the sort of large accounting and consulting firm Deloitte. Yeah, Deloitte, and they're in, interested in data. I mean, Headset has been the standard along with a couple of other companies, but we're seeing some really big names coming in because data is everything, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's Headset, there's BDS Analytics, who's advertised with us in the past. There are some, some other firms. And so the, the idea is that when you think about sort of mainstream retail and you think about Walmart or, or Amazon or something like that, and I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on that, but they have phenomenal amounts of data in terms of where everything gets produced, how, where it goes, how, how fast. And cannabis, because it, it's coming from the underground economy, this, this kind of data doesn't really exist. But for businesses, it becomes immensely valuable to know what products are selling, where, all sorts of information that is sort of beyond my imagination. Right. Well, I think we're going to get into it a little bit later with Jeremy. But, you know, when we talk about these people, we're talking about the cannabis data people that we know and respect. They don't have nearly the depth or the reach of a place like Nielsen. And that is everything. It's not going to be a passive involvement, this this merger. I mean, we're seeing these big names, mainstream names coming into cannabis, but it's not going to be like Altria and being involved with Kronos. You know, this is something active, right? Well, and it's in it's in the U.S. as well. I mean, it's still an ancillary business. They don't touch the plant, mm-hmm. as, as far as I know. So j- just to give an example, like, and I'm not sure how, how Headset distinguishes itself exactly from all the other data companies out there. But for example, just the point of sale or what the, the cash register, you, you know, the data that, that comes through there is, is immensely valuable, but sort of aggregating that data and the inventory data and the production data across countries, across the States and across markets makes it much easier for, for companies to predict how well their, their business is going to do and ultimately sort of become more profitable. So, and you know, it's a, it's a big vote of confidence in the industry, clearly that, firms like Deloitte and Nielsen are getting involved. Okay. It's a vote of confidence as if the industry needs one, but is it, a? I, I feel like a, an old school patriot for the first time in my life. Aren't they kind of banking on Canada? I mean, that's where this all begins, right? It, I mean, I don't know where this deal is going to focus on initially. Um, certainly Canada is probably in a lot of ways an easier market to work in right now, but Ultimately, you got to figure they're they're interested in in the U.S., which has ten times as many people. Does this spell trouble for the established uh, analytics companies in the industry? Because suddenly there's a lot of resources with headset. I mean, I would imagine they're certainly going to have have some stiffer competition. So people aren't that familiar with Deloitte. Can you explain to the the numbskulls like me who exactly they are and what they do? I mean, they, they're a massive 
accounting and consulting firm. So mm-hmm. I think one of the big four accounting firms, they've got offices all over the world. I don't, I, they have thousands of employees. Just like oh, many, 15. many thousands of employees. Yeah. And, you, you, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how extensive this particular deal is going to be in terms of who, who's going to benefit, benefit first, but clearly it's a sign of the industry becoming more normalized and functioning more like corporate America that we expect that other companies use. Absolutely. I was in a Deloitte office, not knowing what they do because I'm a numbskull, but I, I what learned, were you doing in a Deloitte office? Uh, I, a friend of mine runs the office. I'm, I'm connected like that. But Are they all passing around bongs? No, and- no. What I was going to say, quite the opposite, <laughs> is that they handled the Republican National Convention most recently. So that's you don't get any more mainstream than that. I think it's interesting. They're not touching the weed, but they're hugging the weed. They got their eyes on the weed. I've been saying for a long time that this is a Republican industry. They just... They're moving in that direction. Well, you know, I, I, I want to ask one of our – we have a great guest coming up who's an industry leader. I wanted to ask him the difference between their makeup and the NFL front offices because it kind of feels the same, you know. I mean, okay, well, ownership we'll, ownership is a lot, of, a lot of white guys. Oh, yeah. So the Republican reach is not that far. So to, to tell us about some of those white guys um, – That's a transition. That's, yeah. <laughs> I think that may have been the best transition we've ever had on the show. Well, and I, thank please you. Please go on. Um, today's guest is Jeremy Burke. He's a reporter with – Business Insider, and he's been following the white-collar world of cannabis for a long time, and since since 2016, and that beat has really picked up recently as as more law firms and more banks are getting involved because that's where the money is. Same reason that guy used to rob the banks. That's where the money is. <laughs> Jeremy's also Canadian, so he has an interesting perspective on Canada where sort of this activity is already really in, in full swing. It's unfair, but we kind of had to press them on some points. There's so many gray areas, you know, that you can't really get an answer sometimes. And he did the best he could to provide it, you know. And when you're talking about banking and cannabis, you can't help but get into the woods. It's true. It's all gray. And, <laughs> and with green. That, it's all gray, all green. <laughs> that sounds like the worst weed in the world. So we should go to <laughs> Jeremy right now, right? Yeah, here's Jeremy Burke. Jeremy Burke is a reporter with Business Insider. He's joining us uh, from New York. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. So you've been covering sort of the the intersection of cannabis and Wall Street for, for some time now. We often link to your pieces in, in the Weed Week newsletters. Can you just give us a state of, of where things are and, and how they've changed in, in the time you've been you've been covering this beat? Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, I, I guess we'll give a little background. So I, I've been do- I was doing this sort of um, I would say in an ad hoc way since uh, the very beginning of 2016, um, and then in the last year, as obviously we saw you know deal sizes get larger, we saw more investors coming in. It, it became my full time focus. Where things have changed, um, there's been you know a ton of change uh, just in terms of investor interest, in terms of sort of institutions looking at the sector, um, you know, obviously it's not legal federally in the U.S., so there's still a lot of money sitting on the sidelines, but um, we do a lot of reporting around sort of who's trying to get in um, and the financial engineering that goes behind getting in. 
you know, three years ago, we would never have expected to see $850 million transactions like we saw on Monday with uh, Harvest and Verano. Um, but now that seems to come out every week. So uh, the pace is rapid. The deals are getting signed. And uh, it's just an exciting time. You know, I wanted to talk to you about Canada. I'm obsessed with Canada's role in all this, as I'm sure you are, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you have these cannabis producers up there who are lobbying the Toronto Stock Exchange to allow them to invest in American companies. Can you walk us through the reporting that you've done on this? Sure. So, again, I, I guess this, uh, this could use a little bit of background. So the, the cannabis market is in this funny situation where, you know, since THC is federally legal in the U.S., but it's legal in Canada, companies that want to sell, distribute, or cultivate THC products in the U.S. have to list on the Canadian Securities Exchange, which is sort of a secondary market. Um, it's not the premier stock exchange in Canada. That being said, Canadian marijuana producers that sell to the Canadian market and increasingly globally, um, they're all listed on the TSX. The TSX is where in Canada, you know, you have serious institutional investors, Canada's big five banks. But because the TSX, uh, you know, this, it's run by the TMX Group, which is this big global company, you know, they don't really want to fall offside of the U.S. federal government. It's, it's too interlinked. So what they basically have said is that any Canadian operator, um, i.e. the Canopy Growth or Aurora's of the world, uh, they can't really do business in the U.S. on the THC side. Um, you're seeing some movement on the CBD side with the Farm Bill, but uh, by and large, they're sort of locked out of the U.S. market. If the TSX changes their rule, uh, you know, it's not quite clear what a new policy would look like. Uh, that would really give these big Canadians a huge competitive advantage to sort of bull rush the U.S. market and uh, basically, you know, in their mind, wipe out the market share that uh, the U.S. multi-state operators were, were trying to develop. In terms of reporting out the story, we, we had gotten a number of, of tips that one of, the, uh, one of the bidders for Verano was actually a Canadian LP. Um, I got to keep my sources quiet on that, but they were they were sort of seeking assurances that that they wouldn't get delisted off the Toronto Stock Exchange, um, and, and the Toronto Stock Exchange couldn't promise that. But um, that sort of opened the doors to an avenue where we talked to a bunch of sort of capital market lawyers that work with these companies, and they they you know uh, confirmed to us that that lobbying was going on. Uh, they're pushing hard, and and they're really couching it in a way to say, you know, Canada could be at the forefront of this, like this is the one opportunity we have to eat the U.S.'s lunch. And, you know, personally speaking, being from Toronto, uh, the Canadians are never first to do anything. Um, we have a much lower <laughs> risk, risk tolerance than the U.S. does. And, and so I think, uh, I think this is sort of a big paradigm shift for them. There are also a bunch of, of U.S. companies who are choosing to go public in Canada because they can't go public in America. Right. And can you walk us through sort of the, the pros and cons of doing that for an American company? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so basically, these companies are going public in Canada because that is where they can go public. They need to go public because, you know, the industry is in the consolidation phase. There's a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on. So they need, you know, they need stock, i.e. they need a currency to sort of pursue these acquisitions. The only place to get that right now is the Canadian Securities Exchange. So... Basically, you know, three years ago, the Canadian Securities Exchange had very few companies listed on it. You know, their business wasn't good. And now, you know, I, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's probably over 50% cannabis companies and specifically cannabis companies that operate in the U.S. So basically for them, 50%, it's sort of, 50, wait, I'm sorry, I got to interrupt. 50%, that's crazy. That's, that's that, a, you, you know, I, it's an estimation. So I want to, you know, don't, don't, uh, 
don't hold that. It's still remarkable. Total, the, side, the, the fact that you decided to go with 50% is indicative of something, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a crazy market. It's, it's just so hot. And, you know, there's a lot of investment bankers in Toronto who are making, making a lot of money on these deals. The market is just so hot and, it, and it's just continuing and continuing. Are the American companies getting anything out of this or are they just getting their asses kicked because they're not federally legal as in Canada? So I think it's actually, uh, conversely speaking, it's actually kind of the opposite. The, the longer marijuana or, or I guess THC, uh, to use a specific term, remains federally illegal, the more time these companies have to grow, to consolidate and to sort of expand their market share and build their brand. What's keeping bigger players like the Canadian LPs or even, you know, big alcohol or tobacco brands from eating their lunch is the fact that it's federally legal. So it, it, it kind of helps them in a way that they get this opportunity to grow and expand, you know, before multi-billion dollar companies come in and either buy them up or just completely wipe out their market share. That's really interesting that sort of while, while everybody in the industry ostensibly wants legalization, it's not necessarily in the interest of everybody for, for legalization to happen right now. Right, exactly. It's, it's The best thing to happen is, specifically for U.S. cannabis companies, the best thing to happen is increasing momentum towards legalization for state markets to open up. Um, you know, obviously banking access is, is a huge problem for them. Um, but, you know, it being illegal gives them time to grow and gives them time to carve out the market and, uh, you know, build their brand the way they want to. You talked about in one of your pieces about Citibank, I'm sorry, Citigroup, and they had conversations yes. with cannabis companies. Tricky as it is for U.S. banks to service companies in the industry, how can that happen? So, you know, it's, it's a good question, and there is no clear answer. There are a couple banks working with cannabis companies. I mean, in our reporting, I think we uh, sourced a Federal Reserve letter that showed there's sort of, you know, a few hundred uh, smaller banks or even credit unions that are doing simple things like opening checking accounts and stuff like that. But in terms of the big institutional investors, um, you know, the, the companies that hold millions and millions of dollars of stock, uh, there is not much, if any, of that right now. But that's not to say that banks like Citigroup don't want to get in. They obviously see, you know, where the industry is headed. They see how big of an opportunity this is. It's just the risk is so high for them. And so in reporting that story, we talked to a number of people at the bank sort of on and off the record and and. Uh, what most of them have said is like, you know, we're going to evaluate this on a case-by-case basis. We, we can't come up with a firm-wide policy. Federal rules on this are too nebulous, but, you know, we're, we're going to try and figure it out. In this, you, you talked about how, how sort of some of the biggest banks on Wall Street are, are financing some of the acquisitions. But what do they see as what they can do and what, what they can't do? Yeah, there, there's not. I mean, there's not a ton they can they can really do directly related to cannabis. What you're seeing them start to do, um, and you know, with obviously the big sort of benchmark uh, constellation deal with Canopy, Goldman Sachs advised constellation on the deal, so they had some exposure to it, but that was on the constellation side. So what they're doing is taking you know an existing client and sort of helping them navigate how to pursue this acquisition. Um, and, and through that process, they're sort of learning about the industry, uh, learning about the risk profile, learning about you know what companies are going to be winners. What they can't do right now is 
advise Canopy on on making these transactions. Specifically, if Canopy starts to work in the U.S., if they you know start to if they decide by any means they want to try and sell THC products, not that they would, but hypothetically speaking, um, you know that would probably be a bright red line that a bank like Goldman Sachs wouldn't cross. Smaller investment banks who don't have as much to lose as Goldman Sachs, i.e., sort of you know Roth Capital. Uh, or these sort of smaller broker dealers, like they, t- to them, you know, the risk might actually be worth it. They might assume that the federal government won't crack down on them and, and this could be a big boost to their business. But there is no, you know, to sum that up, there is no sort of hard and fast line of what they can and can't do. And they're all sort of scrambling, trying to figure this out. So when you wake up in the morning, go to work, I'm assuming you're covering cannabis a lot. What's what's the story that really makes you go, oh, shit, this is interesting. This is the most interesting story in the business. You know, I, I so I don't come at this from, you know, an advocacy background. So I, I really try and take a, a follow the money approach. You know, who's investing in this? Who's making money from this? And how the people that are making money from this are predicting the future are sort of the most okay, interesting okay, things enough, fili- enough filibustering. What's, what is it? What is, <laughs> I, I know that trick. What's, sure. what's the story? Sure, Come sure. on. Uh, dream story? Uh, dream story. Go ahead. My dream story would be, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs is, uh, is, is buying up canopy growth or, or you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe Nestle or Coca-Cola is buying Aurora or something like that. Um, these big watershed deals, um, you know, as a business reporter, are really exciting. Um, it's really hard to, to get the news first. It's, it's really hard to crack some of these companies, um, especially as a young reporter. But um, I, I'm pretty, pretty excited about seeing who's going to be next, who's getting bought next, and what's the next shoe to drop, and, and you know, what, what, what Fortune 500 corporation is going to become a weed company. <laughs> so do you have much of a sense, like, have you spent – any time in in the the legal markets, visiting companies, talking to executives, stuff like that. Yeah, I have. Um, you know, because I'm based in New York, uh, I, I spend a little less time, you know, talking to startups and you know uh, brick and mortar dispensary owners. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm frequently in Toronto, frequently in Colorado, so you know, I, I have a pretty good understanding of what the market is and how the markets change. So, do you get the sense from the folks on Wall Street if? if they have much of a sense of how the industry works and the, the people in it, or are they just sort of crunching the numbers? So it's a really interesting question, and I, and I hope I have an interesting answer for that. Um, a lot of these Wall Street analysts, they, you know, they'll be the first ones to admit there's a big process of education for them. They're not, you know, they might not be pot smokers, or they might never have been pot smokers. They're not sort of steeped in the culture. And so when you read a lot of these analyst reports, what they really want to see are our cannabis beverages, because the logic goes that people drink alcohol, alcohol is intoxicating, people smoke cannabis because cannabis is intoxicating, so why not sort of mix the two? People are used to alcohol. But, you know, I, I think when you really look at what dispensaries are selling and, um, you know, thinking of my own experience as someone with a little bit of subject matter expertise, you know, I, I don't see cannabis beverages being this huge thing that, that Wall Street analysts think. You know, I'm okay with being wrong on that. Um, you know, it's impossible to have a crystal ball. But that being said, like they, the, the market categories they're looking for and what they're sort of pushing the companies they cover to do, to me, there seems to be a mismatch between what actual cannabis users are doing and what they actually want. We were just discussing the uh, deal between Deloitte and Head, Headspace and um, AC Nielsen. And 
the role of analytics is so important with cannabis. When you say something like that, it just makes me think you're relying on biases in a way that is sort of antithetical to how things are happening right now. Am I reading you right there? Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. I mean, and that's that's part of the challenge with with doing business in an industry like cannabis because there's not a lot of history there. You know, the, the oldest markets have only been in operation for a few years. Uh, the data collection is spotty. Uh, well, that's not true. Hold on, <laughs> hold on for a second. Hey, 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 hey! I can't let you get away with that one. Some of these people have been sure, going sure. for twenty years. They obviously been moving it. Uh, you you mean something else, right? I mean, the legal market. The probably. legal market, and how is that different? The legal. The legal market, the, the oldest market that, that is operated in full accordance with state law, I will, I will say. Okay. You know, and, and what, what that gives you is, is data on the back end. Like, you know, a lot of, you know, California has obviously had medical marijuana for, for you know, decades at this point. But what they didn't have is sophisticated data collection and they didn't have analysts sort of looking through what sells at what rate and why and to who and what market categories it's going towards. That data is very new. And, and, you know, in any other industry, there's literal decades, uh, if not more, of that data to make decisions based on. So data is, is crucial. I mean, it goes with cannabis, as I guess with anything else uh, in 2019. But this data is absolutely crucial to understanding the industry. And obviously, it's only going to get better um, as more bigger markets keep moving and keep selling. Uh, we're going to get a lot more clarity on, on what people are actually buying what people actually want and, and, you know, how much they're willing to spend. What are some of the companies out there that you're most intrigued by and that you think Wall Street might be most intrigued by? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's really hard at this stage. Uh, This is kind of a cop-out answer, but I'll give you a better one in a second. But I I do think it's really hard at this stage to pick winners. You know, consumers are fickle. The the products that, you know, tend to get a lot of runway uh, sometimes come out of nowhere. That being said, you know, I do see some brand recognition. And this is even, you know, when I talk to uh, my parents, and older people who, who aren't really as close to the industry as I am, you know, despite the problems, people do really like the MedMen stores. Uh, they, they go to them. I know people my parents' age who are, you know, in their 50s and 60s like going there. I think Kaliva is a really good company. I think they have a really good management team. Uh, they have a really good suite of products. And I think Headset, as you mentioned before, you know, they're one of the leading data providers. Uh, headset and BDS Analytics sort of come to mind. And while they're not cannabis-specific companies, you know, what they're offering is, is super valuable and super important to investors. So, I mean, that's sort of my off-the-cuff answer. It's a tough question, though, like I said. Like, it's, it's really hard to have a crystal ball and say, you know, this is it. This is the company. So you, you've got a, a Canada perspective as well, what is, what's your impression of how how things are are working in Canada, and especially Ontario, since that's where you're from and it's also the biggest market? Yeah. So you know, I'll answer the question in two ways. So the first question is is, is how is the policy working? And you know, I, I think it's sort of rolling out in a, in a really uh, what strikes me as a haphazard way. It seems to me like specifically in Ontario, um, you know, the Liberal Party had this plan to sort of open up these dispensaries to sort of run it through the province, like the way liquor sales are. Um, And they they were working on this plan for a long time. And it it looked okay. It looked like they were going to sort of underserve the market and they underestimated demand, but it was a starting point. When the Conservative Party took over, they sort of threw out the plan and said, you know, you, you know, private sector should come in and they should do this. But it didn't really 
go in a good direction from there, in my opinion. You know, they, they open this lottery process up to open dispensaries, you which should explain is sort that, of... Because I, I don't think most of our listeners would know what that is, the lottery process. <laughs> so so it, it sounds kind of crazy, but basically they just put it to... So they, they said, we're going to open 25 stores in Ontario, and they basically picked numbers out of a hat for who could open these stores. Um, wow. There's no due diligence behind, you know, who these companies were, their track record, whether or not these are even people that could you know, be responsible enough to run a business and, and, you know, uh, take out a loan and, and make money. They, they just sort of opened it up to everyone, people inside and well outside of the cannabis community. So it seems like there are some things that aren't super well thought out. That being said, I think in 10 years, a lot of people aren't going to remember this initial messiness and it's going to look pretty good for Canada. Um, you know, like I said earlier, that to be first on something, to be the first G7 country to, to take a risk and do this. Um, so, you know, I commend that. Do you feel like uh, these Canadian companies will have less of a flushing of the people who were originally in cannabis than we're seeing in the United States? Because the consolidation right now here means that a lot of people who were pioneers are screwed right now. You think we'll see less of that in Canada? Yeah, I, I do. I, I do think, you know, just based on my reporting, um, whether it's for good or bad, there are uh, some very sophisticated finance types who are kind of kind of ready to strike on the industry. And I, and I think uh, some people who, who have been in it from the beginning will, will be successful at sort of navigating that shift and, and others won't be so successful. Um, and, you know, that, you know, for better or worse, again, is, is capitalism. And, and this this is a story of capitalism. Um, this is a brand new industry and there's a lot, a lot, a lot of money to be made. And a I think, lot of I think Alex, Alex, <laughs> Alex just hold, held me back from going, ooh, gross, because <laughs> I am not a capitalist and I don't think this is a capitalist industry, but I guess it is. I'm wrong. I lost. <laughs> well, no, no, I, I, I don't think you're wrong at all. I just, you know, it's just obviously this is the perspective that I report on. I personally am, am you know, I wouldn't say agnostic, but my, my political feeling isn't quite so capitalist personally, but uh, I, I'm just sort of telling you what, you know, what I see out there. The handwriting's on the wall. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. All right. I think, I think we need to wrap up there, but Jeremy Burke, uh, thanks so much for, for joining us. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on guys. I, I appreciate it. It was fun. Yeah, it was really good. Thanks so much for your insights. That's our show for today. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Weed Week News. Email us at hello at weedweek.net. Today, ask, uh, tell us who you think is going to be the big company, the big brand. Also, don't forget to show us some love on iTunes by giving us a rating, five stars, or leaving a review, and it means a lot to the show, helps people find it. For more weed news, you can sign up for the Weed Week newsletters. That would be Canada, that would be California, and the OG Weed Week newsletter, indispensable stuff at weedweek.net. They're all free. Go get them. I'm Alex Halperin. And I'm Donnell Alexander. Our producers, Hannah Smith and Alicia Beyer, wrote our theme music. Additional music is from the late, great Andre Bush. We'll catch you here next week. Bye. Later. Later.